1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in prayers, remembering you before God, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to the and how you turn to God from the idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, for the last three weeks, I've been attending a little church down in the West Country in a very, very different setting to St. Helens and this church here at St. Peter's. Week one in the notices, Ephraim Tredudic II a South Devon bull was congratulated as the winner of Best Beast in the show at the Camelford Agricultural Gathering. Week two, when we turned to our neighbours to greet them, my neighbour asked if I was going to the Cornish Wrestling All England Championship. She didn't suggest that I partake. And on week three, on arrival, there were baskets of cauliflowers. Tesco's harvest only 40% of what is grown, and everybody was invited to take home cauliflowers, cucumbers, and goodness knows what. So it was very different and quite a relief to be back in the safety of concrete and steel and glass. The senior pastor was concluding a series in 1 Thessalonians, and it was most helpful because I had determined to make my own personal study over the last three weeks in this little letter. And so for three weeks, I've had the joy of being immersed in 1 Thessalonians for a reason, Uh, My aim is that we study this letter later in the year, and also we're going to be using it substantially for our training of staff as the staff gather in a couple of weeks' time. It is a gem. From the first reading in Acts, we might get the impression that Paul, Silas, his Roman name Silvanus, and Timothy were in Thessalonica only for the inside of three weeks. Luke tells us that he was in the synagogue for three weeks. But it's not necessarily the case that he was only 15 days in the city. Indeed, I think it's highly, highly unlikely. He doesn't tell us how long elapsed between his last sermon in the synagogue and when ultimately he was evicted from the city. And given that in this letter Paul announces that 
he had become affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. They had become so very dear to him in 15 days. And that Paul in this letter said he had to work night and day in order to sustain his ministry amongst the Thessalonians. What, just for a fortnight? And that the church in Philippi sent once and again, Philippi is 95 miles away from Thessaloniki, uh, they sent once and again in support of, of, of Paul. What? In two weeks, they raised the money, made a 95-mile journey, went home, raised the money, made highly unlikely. Now, what seems to have happened is that the apostle was chucked out of the Jewish synagogue and then conducted an extensive and significant gospel work amongst non-Jewish, Gentile, pagan idolaters. And Paul's normal practice on concluding a mission in a city was to return very shortly after the mission visit to conduct what you might call a follow-up to see how things were going. But in chapter 3 of this letter, we read that he wasn't able to make such a follow-up visit. And this letter, therefore, serves in place of what was Paul's normal practice of follow-up, of post-mission discipleship training. It's simply loaded with the language of strengthening, of encouraging, particularly in the face of suffering and opposition, which is exactly what you find in Acts when Paul revisits. He encourages and strengthens. And the word for strengthen is, is a word for rooting something, embedding it, stabilizing it so that it isn't driven this way and that. And that was Paul's normal practice. What it means is that we have in this little letter a document. In fact, it's the earliest letter in the New Testament, written in 50 AD, just a couple of months after Paul had been thrown out of Thessaloniki following his extensive mission. And it's a document designed to strengthen young baby Christians in their faith. What a fantastic letter for us to have, particularly because it's written to a non-Jewish audience predominantly, and I guess for the majority of us, that means us. Back in the 1980s and 90s, we used to have a little course we ran called Just for Starters. It was for baby Christians to help them get kind of established in the faith. And I want to suggest that 1 Thessalonians is the Bible's Just for Starters for baby Christians, perhaps for a youth group, uh, maybe for people who've become Christians recently, in order to get them firmly rooted. Well, far too much already for one Sunday if we were to look at the whole letter. What I want us to do today is simply to look at two verses, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And in these two verses, as we hear a report of how the Thessalonians received Paul, Silas, and Timothy when they first went and evangelized the city. So we are given, if you like, the message that Paul preached to the pagan, non-Jewish idolaters. And that's what I want us to focus on. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what was the essence of Paul's preaching amongst non-Jewish idolaters? Turn, serve, wait. Turn to the living and true God in faith, serve the living and true God in love, wait for his son from heaven in certain hope and expectation. Let's hold up this plumb line then, examine it, and look at this baseline of the essential Christian message and think about our own personal response and the own message, our own message to those amongst whom we live and work. The word turn is a very strong word. It's used repeatedly in the Acts of the Apostles for a person's conversion. Repent, turn again so that your sins might be blotted out. Turn from vain idols. Turn from darkness to light. You hear it repeatedly in the Acts. So the Thessalonians made a decisive decision. They were engaged in a radical change of direction, a fundamental new turning of the human will to God, an owning of this God as my God, the only true God, not only accepting his existence, but trusting him as the source of all life, and giving to him love and obedience. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice they turned from and they turned to. They were going in one direction with this set of assumptions, desires, joys, and delights. They now go in another direction. You turned to God from idols. And In Acts, Paul describes idols as vain things. He describes idols as being served by human hands, needing things, images formed from the art and imagination of man. And you see that, don't we, when we go to visit places where pagan idolatry is very, very prevalent. I remember my first visit to Bangladesh, Dhaka. It was the time of the Hindu ceremony of Durga Puga and the vast carved image of the goddess, multi-breasted, surrounded by sort of bananas and fruit and meals and clothes, as if she actually needs things from humans. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes idols as having no real existence. And having rejected the truth that there is one creator God who made the heavens and the earth, everything in this universe, who stands outside of this universe, beyond this creation, sustaining it and ordering it according to his sovereign will, inevitably all that is left to humanity is to invent deities and divinities, philosophies and theories according to our own imagination. And inevitably then, all alone, on the ocean of this vast universe, insecure human beings end up taking refuge in a thousand different harbors, each one dreamt up, each one unable to provide a safe haven. And in the first century Greek and Roman world, innumerable array of gods 
and goddesses. I'm told that from Thessalonica, you can look at it next time you go to visit Thessaloniki, who uh, play in the Europa League, I believe, from time to time. And next time you're there with your team, you can look at it. I'm told across the harbour, you could see 50 miles away on a very, very clear day, Mount Olympus. And there the vast pantheon of ancient pagan deities were arrayed, a god of war, a god of wealth, a god of love, a god of concord, a god of the underworld, a god of the arts, a god of wine, a god of work. And no single god able to provide all our needs. And so serving idols, becoming a desperate treadmill, like a man spinning plates in the circus, a god of well-being, a God of meaningfulness, a God of health and fitness, a God of success and financial security. Remember Paul when he went to Athens in Acts 17? He discovered a temple to an unknown God. Uh, Let's keep all the bases covered, shall we? Just in case we've missed one, we better worship something unknown as we keep spinning the plates. And Paul demanded, summoned, the Thessalonian pagans, to turn from man-made idols, human philosophies, human ideas, to worship the true and living God. And you can see Paul contrasts idols with the true and living God. You see it there. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, has a brilliant string of contrasts. Idols are dead. God is living. Idols are false. God is true. Idols are many. God is one. Idols are created. God is creator. Idols are imagined. God is real. Idols are visible. God is invisible. And so the Thessalonians summoned to turn from idols to worship the true and living God. There is one God, one creator who made the entire universe. He is alive. He is real. He is true. And Paul's message is that we turn from human philosophies to worship the one true living God. I remember going to lunch with the CEO of a company right next to St. Helens where they were big time into the Eastern philosophy of feng shui. Do you know the uh, idea that the energies inherent within the inanimate objects which surround us, whether it be furniture or, or, or whatever it happens to be, impact our well-being and Uh, Robert Hiscox had really got into this philosophy. In fact, he had a water feature pointing in the direction of St. Helens to ward off the evil that might come from the dead bodies in the graveyard. And uh, over lunch, he asked me, he said, uh, you know, what do you make of our spiritual philosophy? And um, I, I was, he was sitting there opposite me. He had his COO on one side of him and his CFO, chief financial officer, on the other and his head of PR on my right and some other senior man on my left, just the six of us. What do you think? It was his opening, opening comment to me. And uh, I, I said something along the lines of this. Once a person stops believing in the God of the Bible, 
the one true God who made the heavens and the earth, a person will believe in literally anything. With the rejection of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, superstition and idolatry will advance apace across the United Kingdom and take root even here in the city. Of course, because once you stop worshipping the one true living God, well, you turn to idols, you seek safety in any harbour, and no harbour is sufficiently secure, and so you have, to, you have to take another base and then cover another base to an unknown God. Clearly, Paul arrived in this city and pointed out the utter folly of worshipping inanimate objects and human ideas where there is a living God. They turned in faith. They served in love. Look at verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So turning from God and from idols is not a turning from slavery to inhumane taskmasters of religion to a life of independence. That's really important for us to be clear on. They were saved for service. They were purchased by God for a purpose. They turned in order to serve. And I guess we're given a tiny picture of what their service looked like in verses 6 through 8. You became imitators of us, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit and became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, that's down to the south, Athens and Corinth, and the word has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So their service involved affliction. Of course it did. It was painful because as a person turns from the idolatrous culture that surrounds Friends and family, colleagues and acquaintances take it really personally. And so there was much tribulation. And just as Paul had been driven out of Philippi, so Paul was driven out ultimately from Thessalonica as the message spread and people began to turn and lives were turned upside down. So their service of the living God, it was painful joyful, because now at last, no longer slaves, not serving desperately needy idols. They've come to the creator and sustainer of the universe. They've been set free to be truly human, to serve the living and true God. And then undisguisable. Do you see the message, verse 8, sounded forth from you in Macedonia. The word to sound forth is a word for a trumpet blast or a gong or the crashing of the waves on the sea or on the beach uh, from the ocean. And it seems that the radical change for the Thessalonians could not be kept quiet. It doesn't look like the spread of the gospel was particularly organized or computerized. There was no PR agency. It was just gossiped. But the new values and the new standards and the new loves and the new lifestyle of the Thessalonians, just news spread, ripples went out. Thessalonica was on the great road, the Via Egnitia, a vital transport route. It was a key city for trade. It was the leading city of Macedonia, a free city. 
described by some as the second city of Rome. And so as the gospel took hold and people turned and their lives were changed, so the word spread. And in the second half of the letter, Paul devotes the final three chapters to the moral change that came about in the lives of these new Christians as a result of turning from idols to serve the true and living God. A new sexual ethic, a new responsibility for work, to be serious citizens, productive workers, a new expectation of judgment day at the end, new membership of the eternal people of God, new sober self-control, living in the light rather than living in the dark. We had the senior pastor of the church that we were part of uh, to lunch with his wife uh, over this last three weeks. And uh, she has taken up a place to work in a school in a local estate there where the church is. And in that school, in the community in which it finds itself, the ethic, that is the morality of so-called progressive humanism, has taken hold big time particularly the sexual ethic of free love that has been the watchword of progressives for these last 50, 60 years. Three generations it has developed now. And children on the estate now live in homes where their mothers have other children from multiple different fathers. Indeed, across the whole estate, there are numerous children now who don't actually know who their father is. And so social workers who go into the school have to be trained in incest training because children on the estate following the sexual revolution of the 1960s simply don't know whose father is whose. And now those children are having children themselves. And the mental health illness issues that are coming into the schools as a result of extensive inbreeding, have caused major issues within that particular school. And so the idolatry of the thought leaders of the 60s and 70s has given way within two generations to the adultery and social chaos and comprehensive breakdown that you can see working itself out before your very eyes. The idolatry of free love unleashing on the nation the reality of feral life. And can you imagine what will happen as the gospel begins to take hold on that estate, as lives begin to get changed, and people turn from worshipping idols to serve the true and the living God. Sexual ethics changed. Useful lives now being lived out, a Christian community, order, social stability, self-restraint, spiritual revival. We can imagine the impact ringing out like a trumpet blast, like the roar of waves as they break on the beach, like a gong sounding. This letter then, for us, surely, as we seek to establish Christian unions in our schools, and as we seek to build up Christian groups in our universities, and as we seek to establish the Christian gospel in our workplaces, becomes absolutely essential. This is the message that established the church. 
that you turn from idols to serve the true and living God. And finally, they waited, they turned, they served, they waited confident and assured in hope of the returning King Jesus. Verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, namely Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What was the substance of the early preaching of the apostle to non-Jewish idolaters in the first century? What did he actually say? Oh, idols are false. Turn to God. Turn to God. Serve him. Wait for King Jesus, who is returning from heaven, to save you from God's judgment on the last day. Perhaps more than anywhere else in the New Testament, Here we have clear description of the preaching of the apostle to the pagan world. One true Lord turned him in faith. One true God serve him in love. One King Jesus wait for him in joyful expectation. He alone has been raised from the dead. He alone has conquered death. He alone has died to carry God's judgment at sin. He alone can deliver us on his return from the certain judgment of God that has to come. Real resonance here, for those of you who know Acts 17, with Paul's sermon in Athens, that God should come in judgment, it shouldn't surprise us at all. The accountant expects the audit, the student expects the exam, the athlete expects the competition, the teacher expects the inspection. To have an end goal in life, well, it makes sense of life. We're not wandering aimlessly. That God should be angry on Judgment Day shouldn't surprise us at all. Just open your newspapers. Aren't you angry? I hope you are, as you look at the evil of this world. And the wrath of God awaits all who have refused to recognize him as God, to bow to the knee to him, to worship him, in humble submission, of course his wrath is stored up for those who reject his loving rule, and of course his wrath is stored up for those who will have nothing to do with his son, King Jesus. And there's no sense in which God feels angry like a human person with fits of peak and outbursts of temper and rage. His wrath is right and pure, good and true a just reaction to the wickedness of humanity. And so there is a threat, according to the Apostle Paul, that we all face. Our newspapers are full of threats, global warming, medical pandemics, political and international unrest. But the Lord Jesus, John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets, the Apostle Paul tells us that's a far, far greater threat awaiting humanity, which is the judgment of God at the end of time. And only Jesus has stepped down into this world and only Jesus has lived a life of absolute perfection and only Jesus went to the cross to die to carry God's judgment at our failure and only Jesus has risen and only Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And so Paul's message, turn in faith to living and true God, serve in love the God who loves us 
and wait expectantly for the Lord Jesus who can deliver us from the wrath to come. Well, we must finish now. But before we do so, three very brief points to note. How confrontational Paul's message is. Did you feel it? How confrontational it is. Modern leaders of mainline denominations seem to tiptoe around the godless idolatries of our age, desperate to woo idolaters into some sort of sympathetic support of the church. Paul will have none of it. Idols are vain. Idols are empty. Idols are dead. There is only one true living God. How confrontational. How theological Paul's preaching is. How God-centered his message is. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and Jesus Christ, his son from heaven. How confrontational, how theological. And then how focused on the end Paul's message is. Clear about judgment Paul's message is. The posh word is eschatological, confrontational, theological, and focused on the end, the preaching of the Apostle Paul. There is a judgment day. It is coming towards us like a freight train. There is only one way of deliverance from God's judgment, and it is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel message that formed the church and a church from which God's message rang out across the world and the church that delivers from Paul this wonderful letter to us. More on it later in the year. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we look out on our nation bound up in idolatrous worship of non-entities, human invention, philosophy, theory, and so desperately enslaved. And we praise you for the wonderful truth that you are the one true God, that you are the living God, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you sustain your creation moment by moment. We thank you that you sent into this world your son, Jesus Christ, to make yourself known. We thank you that he delivers us from your coming certain judgment. And we praise you that he is going to come again. And we pray that you would write this truth into our hearts and give us the kind of confident assurance that we find with the apostle so that we in our day can proclaim this truth with equal courage and conviction. In Jesus' name, amen.